How's everyone doing? Very good. All right. Yeah, I had to be in church today. Kind of wrecked my whole weekend, but what are you going to do? Um, not at all. It is the, what, what is great is having the opportunity where whether we're coming off of a week that either uh, we, we're not sure which end is up or we're facing a week like that, uh, we can ground. We, we can feel what is solid beneath our feet, what captivates our heart, what aligns us in our direction in life. And that's really what we do here in responding to who God is in worship. We worship him because of who he is. We, we, we praise him. We thank him because of what he does. And this is an opportunity to kind of update our, our, our real-time apprehension of our relationship with our maker. As well, aligning ourselves with his word helps us to better understand and make sense of all that we're going to deliberately uh, be experiencing um, in the week ahead. And so this, this is a tremendous opportunity. And I'm always curious, whatever the text is, in, in working through a book, wow! Why, why does God? Why does God have me working on it this week? I, I wonder what's. I wonder what's around the corner, and. Um it's always a good hand and glove fit. Uh, for those of you joining us, we are working our way through the book of Romans, which is sort of uh, one of the. Um, if you could pick one book in the New Testament, I would I would encourage you to pick Romans, either the Gospel of John or Romans, in that they're the biggest view of salvation, of who we are, of what is the outworking of the reality of Christ, and. Basically, what difference does faith make in our lives? Well, today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, uh, starting uh, looking at verses 1 through 20. But before we get there, I'd like to ask a question. How many, how many people have ever seen a zombie movie? Okay, now what, is it just me? Because it, it seems, you know, I'm, you know, I was born in 66, that my whole experience in the cinema with, with zombie movies was the, uh, you know, George Romero, you know, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, Evening of the Mostly Dead, uh, Early, Late Morning of the Partially Dead. Uh, and, okay, they, they, the franchise broke down after all, you get the point. It was the Romero zombies who were, were slow, but but there were so many of them, and they're relentless, and people are trapped, and it was your, your typical horror movie. Okay. But, but zombie movies have gotten a lot more sophisticated, have gotten a lot more nuanced. I mean, there's only so much you can do with dead people. So we had 28 days, 28 days later, another 28 days, or a month. Um, if you ever wonder what, what happened to Shannon, who was our worship intern, she went on to kill zombies. You know, this is um, uh, Resident Evil. Thank you, Mila. Uh, then there were comedies, zombie comedies, or as I like to call them, zombies. Um, Shaun, Shaun of the Living Dead. Uh, you know, we, we're, these things scare us. There, there's sort of this pathology going on. Let's make fun of it. The zombies aren't so bad after all. We've got um, I Am Legend. Uh, World War Z. Things aren't looking too good for that helicopter right there. Um, and, and there's, uh, I mean, whichever way, a Walking Dead, you know, series on TV. The, the Breaking Bad of zombie movies on um, Basic cable. And then there is this movie, Warm Bodies, which is the title of this sermon. Now, Warm Bodies is, a, is an interesting, different take on the whole zombie franchise. I mean, there's only so much you can do with brains. Um, and, and so with this one, it's a perspective that, that you, see the, you see the world from the zombie's perspective. 
in this one. See, before you're always cheering for, for a protagonist. And if you watch 28 Days, don't get attached to anybody because they all die. But um, other, other movies, somebody makes it, a few people make it. And you're really cheering for them. And the zombies are the enemy. Well, in this one, zombies, uh, you, you see life from their perspective. Now, they, they're all dead. There, there's a, I'm, I'm smoothing the plot lines over for those of you who've seen the movie. But basically, uh, there's a, an outbreak. There's a virus. And it kills people. But they're, they're, they're dead. But they're still animated. They're still going about their lives. And so they realize that they're dead. They have just incomplete memories of what life used to be like before that. But they're going through the motions. They're sort of running their programming software going through life. And so this is R. It's the only part of his name you can remember. I mean, he Go easy on him. He's dead, right? Um, this is R. And, and he, he lives at this, this airport. Uh, he's got a best friend he kind of interacts with each day. And, and it's this sense of, it's, it's a comedy, but it's a sense of life, but it's not life. And we can all recognize that. Well, then there's the land of the living. There's the people that haven't been affected by the, the virus. And they're, they're going into this dangerous area and getting supplies. Long story short, um, he's dead, but he sees the object of his love. And he becomes alive. That there's something that happens within, within him. He sees this, uh, this, this girl who, who's just the, the love interest in the film and, and his heart sparks to life. And the more interaction that they have together, the more life works itself out from the inside out through him. You know, the, the, she discovers that what she thought of the dead and zombies was actually very different. They, they developed this relationship. Um, and it's just an interesting take. Now, why I bring this up, both with zombies and especially this take, is I think this is the very best understanding we have of this text. This is one of the most theologically preached over, picked over, described, delineated texts that we have. If you've ever heard of the words total depravity, basically we're bad. We're bad. Every part of us is bad. It comes... From a number of places, but predominantly, this is going to be the foundation here. How bad are we? How messed up is humanity? What hope does man have on his own? And it's pretty bleak here. But I think there's two things that have happened that have really been an overreach to where we're not receiving this text the way it was intended. Okay, this isn't the big smackdown. This isn't all of you are bad or all religious observance is bad or that we're God is just, you know, so disgusted with us. All our attempts to get his attention or please him, make him want to puke. That's it's been preached this way, but none of that is the case. That's really not what's going on here. Okay, so let's look at what's going on here and, and see if we can wrestle with a better understanding of what God is saying to us. How does a holy God love pretty jacked up, sinful, broken people? Let's read on. Familiarity with God will not save us. Okay, if you remember nothing else, the, 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 this, the synopsis of this entire part of scripture, familiarity with God will not save us. What we've been looking at uh, in the, the first two chapters of Romans is pretty much, well, what's the big deal? Aren't we basically good enough? Or, or do we need God, but in what ways do we need God? So Paul's been making the case, because he's writing to a mixed audience, people who'd never heard of God. People who'd made fun of people who followed God. People who were just had, had complete ignorance uh, as to there was anything beyond them. 
But he's also writing to people who grew up in church, to the Jews, people who from literally right out of the womb, they were observing and following God, and everything about their life was religion, was was God. And he's writing to both groups, and he's saying, for the first group, I hope you can see this. You're lost. You don't know God. Um, Your maker who made you, who said, this is what life's about. You have done it the wrong way. You have hurt people. You've hurt him, hurt yourselves. You've broken faith, broken promises. Your rebellion has just messed up a lot of things. The longer we live, the more we'll agree with that statement. And so he's writing to this first group saying, yeah, there's a reason life is messed up the way it is. It's because you've disconnected yourself from the life source, from the love source, from perspective, from hope, from truth, from orientation. What's right? What's wrong? You're gone. But then he turns his guns. This is what um, Eric was talking on last week uh, to the people who knew God, God's people. Let's put ourselves in that category. All of us, like the Jews... Many of us born in church, many of us not, but all of us call upon God. All of us say we're God's people. All of us says this is what it is to go through this life, following God, seeking him, making him a part of our life, just like the Jews. But here's Paul's point. He's saying, even though you know God, you're familiar with scripture, you can quote chapter and verse, you're an awesome, uber religious person, and and, um, everybody thinks this is the way religion should be, it's not enough. You're very familiar with God, but are you insulated? Okay, it's flu season, right? How many people got a flu shot or a flu mist? Why do we do that? Because it's a virus. You can't get inoculated against viruses. But, but you can have a better chance of not catching one. We get inoculated. We get, get exposed to a dormant small part of a bigger thing so that now our body will be protected from it in the future. We can do that with a gospel as well. That... God can be so familiar. I know about religion. I know about God's word. I know about following him. It can become so familiar we're inoculated. Because ultimately only the outsides change, not the inside. And that's what Paul was saying in the last chapter. For those that call upon God, familiarity with God, knowledge about God, knowledge about his word, doing good deeds. Hey, these are fine, but it is still not enough. You see, both the person that doesn't know God and the person who has grown up knowing God are in the same category. They're both hellbound. Why? Okay, Paul's saying there's something much more going on here than knowing about God or doing what God asks or any of these things. There's a greater divide. One of the things we're going to be looking at with this text, and we'll, we'll, we'll close with it, we'll come back to it, is because of the... How many people are familiar with the Reformation? guys familiar with this basically in the middle ages uh the the catholic church uh really departed from a lot of theology now they had a counter-reformation fixed a whole lot of stuff not talking about that but the situation was basically the church had so become a political institution which was bloated needed lots of money and needed lots of power and had it to be propped up it was using every means possible and so basically it was saying you can get favor you can get you know points um, in the in heaven scoring system by giving extra money, by doing good deeds, by saying these prayers. So you did things and it, you got favor or points with God. And so Luther and other characters came along and they're like, wait a minute, we're way off track here. And he said, this is completely not what God's word says. 
Um, and, and Romans and Romans 3, 1 to 20 were a huge part of the lights coming on for, for Martin Luther saying, you know, he crawled up the steps of the Vatican kissing each stair. He so wanted God and he was so broken by his sin and he was so enslaved and he said, maybe this will make a difference. Maybe that. Nothing changed. His heart was just as cold and hard. But then this, he said this, this warm light broke through when he realized, I've been trying to do it all on my own. There's nothing I can do. God did it all for me. That's the simple gospel. He was set free. But what happened with that in in correcting a lot of um, abuses of the church and other things, we thought this was all about trying to score points with God. But it never was. None of the original readers of of Romans would would go, oh, yeah, this is people trying to be good in church to impress God. Because nobody was doing that. What was going on and what was being addressed was this. The people that called upon God and said, I'm a follower. They were leaning on these things that made them different. And they were leaning on them for their identity. They were leaning on them to prove that they were right. They were leaning on them to try and ensure that it was their observance of it that was going to do it for them. And so things like circumcision, things like the dietary laws, things like the way they dressed, that that what Jews were doing at this time was saying, hey, look, we're chosen by God. We alone are chosen, so we must be special. And because of that, look how special we are. We're not like you. This is what's going to save us. The fact that I can dress differently, it's just rubbing it in your face that I'm heaven-bound, you're hell-bound. The fact that I eat differently, I'm better than you. My identity is in how well I follow my God, and you're lost. And so people were putting all their hope in their performance, and they were missing out on a relationship with God. They weren't trying to get into heaven as such because they knew God had chosen them. That wasn't an issue. But because God had chosen them, that gave them license to just be obnoxious and to be jerks. Have you ever met religious people that are just so much about what they're doing or how they worship or or their, their particular brand? It's hard to see God past that. That's what was going on here. And so Paul's writing to the church saying, we also, because we're humans, we keep going off the rails like this. Let's get back to basics. It's always been about relationship. We want to make it about religion because relationships inside, it's scary. You see how broken I am. You see how real I am. You see how me I am. And that terrifies me. And so if I can cloak myself in religion and good deeds and things that I can lean on and saying, look, Bill's getting it right. He's doing this. Don't look any further. I will do that. And I miss out on God. That's where we're going with this. So what Paul does is there were all these questions that were flying around at the time saying, okay, what's up? God's special people. They're a laughing stock. They're messed up. How could God be God if he let this happen to his people? So Paul jumps in and he's saying, okay, we talked about those who don't know God, and that's how messed up that is for them. They need God. Okay, well, let's address these questions with those who know God. So he addresses one question. This is an arguing style called a diatribe. If you're familiar with the word, diatribe is in all caps, rage of holic, you know, just screaming at somebody. Diatribe simply is you're anticipating their argument and you're saying, but you would say this, but I tell you, no, it's this way. And you might say this, but no, it's that way. So you're, you're basically having a, parents do this a lot with kids, right kids? Um, parents do this a lot where you're, you're anticipating the argument and just moving it along. So Paul does this. What advantage is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. That's his whole argument. 
So he's saying, do you think the words of God are important? Do they matter? Well, the Jews alone got front row seats to to the intimate heart of God. If you can't see value in that, if that doesn't make a difference, then really nothing else is going to. That's kind of a jumping off point. So he says that we got the word of God is awesome. But they, they, where they messed up trying to figure it out. Okay? What advantage is there in being a Jew? Great in every way. But everyone looks around and says, well, how did that work out? Hey, it's great. The Jews got the word of God. So how did it work out for them? Exile, genocide, exile, genocide, exile, deportation, only 5% returning, just the smallest of all the nations, totally uh, under the Roman boot. Wow, God, thanks. As Mother Teresa said, if this is how you treat your friends, please make me an enemy. And so Paul goes on to answer this very, very real question. Whoops. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Because the understanding was this. If God picked me, then I've got to succeed. Because it looks bad for God. So it doesn't matter what I do or don't do. Because I'm God's person, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be everything I want to be because it's on God. You see, I'm his advertisement. I'm his... uh, paint the side of your car, you know, with the advertisement thing and, you know, get some money each month. That's what I am for God. So of course he's just going to back me up and do everything I want. So I look good and smell good. That was the understanding. But the, the hard facts of history were just the opposite. Following God is dangerous. Following God is scary. Following God is costly. Following God is unknown. There is no security. The guarantees that we have are of a qualitatively different wholeness and shalom that we're working out in process here. But this is not the end station, and we can't claim any rights beyond that. And so what the argument was, well, if this is so good, how could he punish? Paul's rejoinder is this. It's not about you. It's about God. It's not about you. God's word says, I did not. And it says this many times because we need it to be reminded. God's people need to be reminded. I did not pick you Jews because you're more numerous than anyone. Quite the contrary. You're one of the smallest peoples around. I didn't pick you because you were better than anyone. Quite the contrary. Look at your history. You guys are dorks. I didn't pick you because you were, you were more spiritual or you were nicer or you were anything. Quite the contrary. I picked you because I love you. Because I am love. And I picked you so that everyone can see what relationship with me looks like up close and personal. What we're going to see in Romans is this. Uh, you, know what, you, know, you know what Russian nesting dolls are? You know why I don't like them? Because they're so full of themselves. <laughs> but with the Russian nesting dolls, um, you keep pulling one out and there's another one and another one and another one. This is Romans. Because what we have is all of humanity represented in all of Israel. We have all of Israel represented all in Christ. And so what happens to Christ happens to Israel is representative of all humanity. This really helps us to sort out things down the road in Romans. So basically, he could have picked any people group. And they would have done the same things because the same heart that you have and I have, they have. 
And so God did this to show his kindness, his love, his mercy, his patience, his forbearance. And the very failures and embarrassments and shortcomings and ugly sin that God's very people do, rather than just showing how messed up we are, speak to his love and his grace and his mercy. Because it's about him, it's not about us. It's about his performance on the cross, not my best intended ability to try and keep up. And that's where my hope is. So the the argument goes on, and I'm paraphrasing to cut to the chase here. Well, what if, um, even though the Jews were disobedient... Everyone saw how loving and merciful and gracious God was. So more people came to God. So why does he punish their disobedience? Because good came out of it, right? And people were using this argument. This is called the, the Rasputin argument. You're familiar with uh, Rasputin? Ra, ra, Rasputin, rushes. No. Um, Rasputin, the mad monk of Moscow, uh, during the czarist time, Michael Romanov, uh, this is uh, 16, 7, 1916, 1917, um, he was, uh, had these mystical, there's a lot of weirdness going on, a lot of mind control, whatnot. But his belief was this, when there's sin, God forgives all the more. When sin continues, grace abounds all the more. Grace is good. We want grace to abound. So the more I sin, the more God is going to give grace out. So we called his bedchamber the Holy of Holies and basically slept with most of the Russian nobility. And it was under the guise of religion because the more we sin, the more God loves to forgive. It's the perfect arrangement. I love to sin and God loves to forgive. It's a marriage made in heaven. Except for the horrible destruction and corrosion of the soul that occurs. And so Paul's answer is the ends don't justify the means. That we're much more important than a means to an end. God loves us far more than getting the job done or that we're billboards. This is not indie. We're not wearing a sponsor jacket. Okay? This is our lives lived out and God cares about us very much. So now we jump into the heart of this. What shall we conclude in this verse 9? Do we have, do we, we Jews, we who call upon God, we who are familiar with the things of God, do we have any advantage? At the end of the day, no. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles, those not chosen by God, um, Old Testament, alike are all under the power of sin because of our humanity. This is the main point. The reason the person who's familiar and the person who's unfamiliar are in the same category is because they're both zombies. They're both dead. Um, And there's no difference between realizing they're dead or not. That's the reality. It's not a matter of anything beyond that. And this is where you get to the heart of the matter. As it is written... Okay, now as it is written, this is when you see that in the Bible, that means there's a bunch of Old Testament coming your way. Basically, a lot of people are familiar with the Old Testament, and so he's ripping, he's doing pop references here. Okay, he's, he's picking people's favorite TV shows, and he's saying, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this. Guess what? It's all the same point. So he's doing this with the Old Testament, which was the ground. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together 
become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. These are all different quotes he's stringing together. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. What are graves for? Oh, dead people. That's right. The poison of vipers is on their lips. That word for poison, it's a word used for corroding metals. So this isn't, oh, I've got a stomachache. I've, I've had some poison. It's, I am, this is the worst. When I say something that hurts somebody, it corrodes them. The poison, the corrosion of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I'm here all week. Thank you very much. Have a good week, and we'll see you back. Um, It's pretty hard to hear because it's just belaboring this point. Bill Osgood, you are a horrible person. You've, you don't have control over your temper or your passions or, or even knowing who you are. You are broken. Just when you think you have it together, you say something stupid. You hurt people. Sometimes you don't mean to. Sometimes you do. Sometimes areas where you've had victory, you just, it's like you weren't even there. You're all over the place. And so it's hard to hear just this indictment over and over again. But here's the big mistake. It's not saying that every single part of us is horrible or that we're absolutely horrible people, we're completely evil and and, um, there's nothing good. The guy that discipled C.S. Lewis put it this way. Throughout history, man has argued so many different things. And there's only, but at the end of the day, there's only one thing that you can prove through human history. And that is man's depravity. In other words, that given enough rope, man is going to hang himself and others. Given enough opportunity, we're going to mess it up. Given enough chance, whatever's good is going to turn bad. Whatever is love is going to turn to be indifference. Whatever is about you is going to be about me. That's just the way it is. And so this is a rabbinical thing called pearl stringing, um, where he's taking pearls and he's just, here's a verse, here's another verse, and here's another verse, and here's another verse. Try it on. A little heavy, isn't it? And so he's saying, basically, look at Psalm 140, look at Psalm 5.1, look at Isaiah uh, 59, 1-3, look at uh, Psalm 15, look at Psalm 10, look at, and so these are all the Psalms that he's quoting in order, and he's saying, you look here, yeah, man's messed up, you look here, same thing, look at our attitudes, look at our words, look at our thoughts, look at our bodies, look at our dispositions, anywhere you look, you see the evidence of death, there is no growth, There is no hope. There is no connection. There is no life. Things continue as they are because as Newton pointed out, my favorite verse in the morning when I was getting up for school, body at rest remains at rest. Same thing with dead bodies. And we can can baptize dead bodies and we can dress dead bodies up, but at the end of the day, we're putting lipstick on the pig. You're going to need a lot more cologne for the corpse because it's starting to smell. And that's called religion. I would say that throughout the history of mankind, we can easily see two things. We can see our fallenness, and we can see the image of God, both together. Remember, we took upon ourselves the knowledge of good and evil, a burden only God can handle, and it crushed us, and we scramble, and we're unable to do this. So we manage, and we try and fit it all together. So we can see, I'm not writing off the human race, because God certainly hasn't. God's so was disappointed with the world that it didn't live up to his expectations. He begrudgingly sent his only begotten son to do this necessary thing that he was forced to do logically because theologians said a certain kind of God had to do this, right? For God so loved the world, loved 
each individual that made up the world. Loved our hearts, loved our thoughts, loved us growing up. Grieved over every harm that came to us. Grieved over our participation in the harms of others. Intimately involved in every aspect of our life. Was not ready to let us go. Crossed hell. Crossed eternity. God so loved us. In our fallenness. In our depravity. In our hurt of him. So loved us. He could not, would not let us go. And it's a love story. And it comes down to this. And this is where we can miss heaven by this much. 18 inches between the head and the heart. As Eric pointed out last week. The difference, is be, the difference is this, between morality and mortality. There was uh, an article called How to Raise a Pagan Kid in a Christian Home by Barrett Johnson. It hit the, uh, hit the internet. Um, it's, it's an old post, but it, it got a lot of circulation last week. And he writes this, and I can't say it any better, so I'll quote him. Too many times, Christian parents, I'm one of those, have it as their goal to make their kids good and moral. Nothing wrong with this. It is as if the entire purpose of the family's spiritual life is to shape their children into law-abiding citizens who stay out of trouble, if only. The only problem with this goal is that it runs in stark contrast to what the Bible teaches. The gospel is not about making bad people moral, but about making dead people alive. The gospel is not about making bad people good, but it's about making dead people alive. If we teach morality without the transforming power of the gospel and the necessity of a life fully surrendered to God's will, then we are raising moral pagans. Are you familiar with uh, these characters? Anyone? That's right, Bob the Tomato, Larry the Cucumber, the Veggie Tales, uh, Phil Vischer, President. Um, now, when, we were in, when my wife and I were in Chicago, we knew a number of people that all worked for Big Idea, were in there from the beginning. And uh, actually, Veggie Tales started as a missionary um, outreach. It was, uh, this is before there was a Kickstarter, there was a Christian Kickstarter, it's called a prayer letter. And um, they raised funds to get Christian media into Muslim countries. And so that's why they're vegetables, because obviously you can't have, you know, animals that, that you know, you're, you're going to run a fowl or a, I'm trying to think of a pig joke I can make right now. Anyway, you're going to run into trouble if you're trying to, if you're dealing with animals, okay? There, there's a lot of cultural offenses, but vegetables, not a problem. And then it was only the Old Testament that was quoted. That's the book that everyone agrees upon. And then it was just, how can we have the recognized core value of making kids be good? And so uh, Muslim parents will say, hey, cool, we, we have a common ground, a dialogue, and we can begin a relationship. That was the original goal. But it caught on in the States, and a lot of Christian families say, hey, this is sweet. It's an unpaid babysitter, and it's, and it's whole And so we just plug this baby in and peace out and um, come back when they're 18 and they're moral kids. It's great. And they still won't eat their vegetables because now, you know, they've got emotional attachment. So I don't think they thought that one through too well. Yeah, I would have had, you know, the um, high gluten, high sugar snack tails or something, whatever. Anyway, be that as it may. Phil Vischer puts it this way. He spent his whole life doing this, and, and he had, a, had, an, had an aha moment. And that was such a huge shift for me, talking about this realization, from the American Christian ideal. We're drinking a cocktail that's a mix of the Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel, and we've intertwined them so completely we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so God will make all your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God or the Disney God. 
Now, we know that whatever the law says, the law is shorthand for the word of God, the Bible. Whatever God's word says, it says to those who are under the law, those who are willing to obey, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And this is where we've really gone sideways with this. Because we're quick to say, there is nothing you can do in here. Nothing, uh, no good deed, no number amount of prayers, nothing you can do. There's this mark on you and you'll never scrub it off and, and it's over. But although that thought is contained in here, that's not really where this is going. What it's saying is this, for those of you that know God or call upon God or say that you're familiar with God, what do you lean upon for your identity practically in the week? What do you lean upon for validation? What do you lean upon for reality and meaning and substance in your life? In other words, just as the Jew in his daily life following God robbed himself of much growth and interaction because rather than Allowing the word to position the heart in such a way, God, what do I need? What, what doesn't work? What is hurting? What, how, rearrange my life. It positions us in a way to say, man, I'm so glad I can do this and it's a level of control. And so we can do it by identity. I'm this kind of Christian or this is my theology that I hold on to or this is my nuanced practice of Christianity that it's just this or it's just that or these other people. We all divide, we all conquer, we have our own way of doing Christ but is it unto deepening intimacy and surrender and freedom or is it just a plateau? Because here's the sad reality, if nothing changes, nothing is changing. And we in the church, or at least me in this church, needs to hear that an awful lot. Because we are designed to change. We're dynamic people. Our bodies change. Our minds change. Relationships change. And certainly dynamically with God, He wants that relationship to change. But this practice of religion or it's I'm going to have a good day because I had my quiet time or I've been doing these right things. Therefore, I'm in good stead with God or man, I've really been kind of out here and I don't know if I can count on God or not. When we start doing that and we're getting out there, we're living as though we're still dead. We're still zombies, that it's still a matter. I've got to fix this part of me. I've got to act more alive. I've got to work this out. In other words, I recognize God in my journey. These are the parts of me that are still bad, and I want your help in that I can make me good. It's the same category as the person who had never known God. Because until there's the fundamental crossing over from death into life, none of the rest of this makes any difference at all. It's an inoculation from the gospel. Those who are most familiar can be furthest away. Some of the most mean-spirited brothers and sisters I know can quote chapter and verse better than me, and I'm a professional. And that's the sad thing, that the word of God that should be liberating, that should be freeing, that should be propelling us toward a God of more grace, more love, more compassion, more forgiveness. And as we are forgiven and loved and begraced, we freely pass that on to others. That's what we validate. That's what we lean on. That's what we make it real. The character of God being expressed in the lives of others, that is life from the life from death 
That is our witness. That is power. That is not something we can whip up in our dead flesh or we can emulate from the world only. It is something only that Jesus Christ can do. Only new life. Only fresh air. It is what we all crave. And when people recognize it, how many people have drowned before? Good. I was hoping there would not be too many show of hands. I've drowned twice and it's terrible. Three times. How soon we forget. And it's horrifying. There's nothing you want more than oxygen. There's nothing you want more. Nothing. It doesn't matter. And you get a breath of just a little tiny bit. You'll do anything for it. You recognize it. It is life-giving. It is satisfying. And that is the reality of the gospel. Life-giving air. Is that what people breathe in as you manifest the character of Christ in their lives? Or is it still, as is often in my case, the stale air of decomposing good deeds and flesh and trying to make it right and it's my behavior and I'm trying to be better? I'll never be better, but the good news is I don't have to. God's word cannot save, as it says here. Its purpose is to reveal our need. That's all it is. It's a signpost. It points to him. It's not just facts, but the facts are necessary, so we're looking in the right place. It's not just feelings, but the feelings are necessary so that we are connected as a whole person. I am lost. I am dead. I need help. I need life. The whole rest of Romans, we're going to be looking at what is salvation. If our death is not what we thought it is, how much more our life is not what we think it is. And, and Paul now taking great pains to show that we all, not just are fallen, not that we all need God, not that we're all on the right side preaching or whatever, but to, for us to, if nothing else, fundamentally grasp that we were dead and now we are alive. That we lived in a world that was reigned by the kingdom of death and pride and sin and selfishness and me first. And this is all it is. And we can try and make it better. And we can try and be as good as we can in this situation and nice as we can and reflect God as much as we think we should. But we're still dead. We can put makeup on like our and warm bodies. We can pretend to be alive. It ain't going to happen. It is life that has worked from the inside out that people will be able to see. We come in contact with the true object of our love, our maker, Jesus Christ. All things created in him, for him, by him, through him. You think of how much a mother bonds with a child in the womb for nine months of gestation. All things, every aspect of us, every single aspect of us created by him, in him, through him, for him, unto him. How much more bonding God has with us. How much more invested is God with us. More so than we could ever know. And so it's not a matter of these expectations and we got to shape up and fly right and be a certain way, minimally. None of it matters. We're all dead. But God is in the business of new heart, new chances, new life. It's not just a new way of looking at things or of understanding things, but of being, of receiving, of responding. And this is the journey that God has underwritten with his very blood. So the whole rest of Romans, we're going to be working through what is this salvation? Why do I still sin as a believer? What is the blessed hope? How does it play out in the day to day? How do I wrestle with a restless heart? How do I wrestle with an inscrutable God that I don't understand? And how do each of us transcend wherever we might be stuck into the true life and the true hope and the true power that God has for us? But we will never fully grasp that life 
if we haven't first come to terms with our death. And we're going to do that right now in celebrating the Lord's Supper. I'd like to invite the deacons forward. I'd like to ask that. Take some time to prepare our hearts. If you're checking this out, if you're seeking faith, if you are wrestling with God, and maybe this is a time to let it pass, it's all good. What we do is throughout the world, throughout the history since Christ, this is a symbolic reminder of what it's all about. We were dead. It required, <laughs> it required the infusion of life to make the difference, and that's what God did in our stead. Perfect justice was done in everything that separated us from our judge, from our maker, from our creator, the true lover. Everything, every hurt, every pain, every wound, everything that was taken personally. That was real guilt. That our consciences were really feeling bad because it was a real wall that separated us. God and his love removed. We were dead. Dead people can't make themselves alive no matter how hard they try. Weakened at Bernie's, right? It isn't going to happen. But God in his love, being so rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. The resurrection power that raised God who died from the universe, the Son of God, that is the power alive in us now. That's what we celebrate. That's what we just say. Thank you, Father. May I go forward in this reality. One more step. More gratitude, more understanding, more appreciation, more surrender. So take this time, allow God's Spirit to speak to you. This salvation, of which we could do nothing to earn, He's given us freely, so that now, in gratitude, we can be alive. We will rise in victory, and we lay hold of life itself in every aspect of our being. Let's reflect to God as the elements are distributed. Please hold on to these. We will all partake together. And again, if you need to let this pass, absolutely fine. Let's continue to worship.
he broke it. Looking around, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Every time that you eat of this, this you do in remembrance of me, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. finished eating, he likewise took a cup of wine. He gave thanks. And looking around, he said, in this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. As often as you drink of this cup, this you are doing in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Please pass your cups to the center.
we have one more song to sing. Let's sing it out to God this morning.
the end of our service. As I say, our service is a noun, beginning of our service is a verb. If uh, there is anything that you would like uh, to continue working through with God in prayer, I'd like to invite our prayer counselors forward, and they'll pray with you right over here. Um, be it a praise, be it be it a request, be it a hurt, be, be whatever it is, to, to labor with you, continuing the good work of God. Now, I mentioned that um, I almost drowned three times. Uh, that, in addition to that, my heart stopped once. I was on fire once. I was in three car accidents. Sniper missed me once. I was pulled out of a fire, firing squad once. Um, blown up once. Um, I almost died so many times. I, I've literally lost count. I am very familiar with death. I'm very familiar with dying. But what I want to be familiar with is life. New life, new hope, completely different. So much of my Christian life, I think, is an extension of the familiarity of death of this world. This is the way I can just transfer over what is dying or dead in this world, and I just have a parallel expression in my faith and in my life, because death is familiar to me. Death and dying in this world, and it stays the same. But when it comes to new life and new hope, a completely different way of doing and being and discovering, we need each other in this. We need each other in each other's lives in bringing this to fruition and opportunities to express this. And moving forward, I want you guys to know I am in, that we can continue to discover what is life together, what is life beyond what we settled for, and what is life in such a compelling and attractive way the natural response of anyone in the city is going to be, I want on this train. This is the love of God. This is the transforming grace of Christ. This is why we are here. And every decision we make, every conversation that we have, every prayer that we pray this week will directly lead to more life, more opportunity for that inbreaking in people's lives or perpetuation of the death of which we are all too familiar. So this is our opportunity to be the change, our opportunity to be the gospel of Christ as he continues to work his life out in, through, and among us. Go in peace. I'll see you next week. Thank you.